0: Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital, dedicated to providing you with insights, assurance, and confidence to grow and manage generational wealth. Full Sail Capital is a fiduciary-registered investment advisor managing more than $1.5 billion with a focus on integrity, competency, and transparency.
1: Hey, it's great to be with you today. I am so excited to bring you a special guest interview with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Today, he carves out some time for us, and we dive into this idea of behavioral finance. We've talked about it at times, maybe early on in a couple episodes. Honestly, I have to go back and listen, uh, but I, I know we've hit on it. Well, Dr. Crosby is a chief behavioral officer with Orion Advisor. Orion's probably not going to mean anything to you guys. Orion is a huge technology firm that does a lot for uh, advisor firms like Full Sail Capital on the back end. And so we have a really good relationship with them. We reached out. We wanted to know if, if Dr. Crosby would be able to join us. He does a a lot of these interviews. He has his own podcast. He has a couple books he's written, which I'll highlight here in a second. But a little bit of background. Dr. Crosby is a, a psychologist and, as I mentioned, a behavioral finance expert. He takes what he studied and he applies it to the market and, and market psychology everything from financial production design to the advisor client relationship and what that engagement looks like he's got more than 10 he, over 10 years of experience in the industry really focuses on bringing behavioral tools training and the technology as i mentioned to advisors so he's been a really good resource for us but we thought we'd bring him on here and let you guys hear f- directly from him the things he sees the things he talks about we could have spent probably 3 hours Going down different subcategories of all the topics we talked about, but we hit hit on a lot. So I'm going to highlight a few things of his, and then we'll get to our conversation. So he's got a podcast called Standard Deviations. You can find it uh, on pretty much any podcast platform that you listen to. So go ahead and put it there as uh, as number two, of course, behind charting the course. But great podcast. And then he's written a couple books. The one we talk about the most today, I guess, is called The Laws of Wealth. Um, and it goes through just so many good examples, a couple paradoxes in the world of investing, goes over the four major, what he calls meta biases. Again, we, we tee off on a lot of that stuff today. So the Laws of Well, Standard Deviations podcast, you can follow Dr. Crosby on Twitter. He's on LinkedIn if you're on that platform. So we are so thankful that he joined us today to assist in the conversation. I've asked Zach Reynolds, of course, our chief investment officer and Max Rhodes, one of the other advisors here at Full Sail to sit down with me and really just help kind of guide this conversation. So I hope everybody really enjoys it. We're going to jump right into uh, our conversation. But if you guys have any feedback for me, please let me know. We appreciate you guys carving out time for us. I know there's so many podcasts out there. And so we're, we're grateful to have the audience that we do have. Anyway, enjoy today's conversation. Have an awesome week. Dr. Crosby, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you do a ton of these, so we appreciate you making time for us and for our listeners, our clients, our partners. As I mentioned, I'm joined by Zach and Max here. And so we're just going to jump right in. I'll probably kick it to you, Dr. Crosby, and have you give us a little bit of your background, why behavioral finance, maybe even define what that is off the top and where that passion came from. What do you do as a chief behavior officer? What does that look like? So Uh, Again, thank you for joining us, but if you don't mind, give us a little bit of background.
0: Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me on today. Uh, I'm Daniel Crosby. So I am a behavioral finance expert. and I'm the chief behavioral uh, officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. And so that's not a role that a lot of people have heard of or a discipline, perhaps, that a lot of people have heard of. But behavioral finance, my, you know, I'm a simple guy, I'm from Alabama, I, I got to keep it simple. And so my sort of my working definition of behavioral finance is just finance that accounts for the messiness of human beings. And so if we look back at the history of econometrics, a lot of the ways in which financial and economic models have been created historically operate with sort of this abstract understanding of human beings as the perfect Utility-maximizing decision maker, and and any of us who've you know lived a day know that that's not how we are with anything, least of all money. And so yeah, so behavioral finance just tries to incorporate our quirks and foibles and fallibilities, and uh, you know create models and technology and investment solutions that uh, account for the way that we do things. In terms of my role, I've got really three pieces. We call it the three T's. It's training tools and technology. So uh, I train advisors who want to learn more about how to connect with their clients, communicate with their clients, keep their clients invested, calm and reassure their clients. Uh, That's sort of the training piece. Uh, The tools piece, we're always trying to develop new tools. We just came up with a new risk tolerance questionnaire that measures you know, not only people's tolerance, but also their sort of behavioral tendencies, which was sort of one of a kind in the industry. Uh, we also just came up with one I'm super excited about, which is a couple's money assessment, which will look at you and your partner and uh, sort of examine your money stories, your money values, compare them, see where you are like-minded, see where there's daylight, and give you sort of suggestions for keeping that relationship strong. So we're always kind of developing tools around the human side of money, and then on the tech side, I think most people don't think about this or understand it because technology is so ubiquitous now. But you know, just the everything from the colors that that an app chooses to the the flow of a sequence to you know where the buttons are placed has profound implications on how people think about and and sort of interact with money. And so we want to make sure that our tech platform at Orion is sort of human-friendly and and accounts for all of this stuff. So that's kind of what keeps me busy. It's a diverse mix of things, and I, I really enjoy the the intellectual challenge.
1: I love it. Thank, thank you for breaking that down, because I think we can go a couple different ways off of kind of all those that you hit on. Max, Zach, where do you guys want to start from our end as we kind of guide the conversation? I know we talked a little bit about the paradoxes in the world of investing that, Dr. Crosby, you mentioned in your book, Laws of Wealth. So we wanna start there? I think that's a great place to start. And admittedly, it's
2: easy for us. We here read about behavioral finance quite a bit and you being an expert in the area are are in it even more. So it's important for us to back off a step and really build a foundational understanding what we're talking about here and why this is such a fascinating and important area to understand. So Dr. Crosby, let's talk about these paradoxes you mentioned in your book, Laws of Wealth fantastic read, by the way. I'd recommend that uh, to a lot of folks out there. And why these paradoxes you mentioned are so different than maybe our understanding coming in as new investors or even seasoned investors. The future is more certain than the present. Second, doing less, Trump's doing more. And third, the collective is less knowledgeable than any single participant. If you'd go through each of those and explain kind of how you arrived at those conclusions.
0: Yeah, so I think your point about uh, those of us in the profession needing a step back and sort of view these concepts with beginner's eyes is important because we're so immersed in these things that we sort of take them for granted. But for the average person, it's important to note that we basically could not have been created any worse when it comes (laughs) you know (laughs) when when it you know when it comes to making investment decisions i mean you know god or nature could not have designed a worse investor than you or i because you know everything that we are wired to do is sort of the opposite of, of what good investing calls for we're wired for uh certainty and quick action and immediacy and good investing requires patience and sort of uh, embracing uncertainty and and a lack of action. And so one of the problems is that the things, you know, to your point about these things being paradoxical, one of the problems is that things that serve us very well elsewhere in life serve us very poorly in markets. And, And you named a couple of them there. I'll I'll begin with, I think I can remember them, I, you know, I'll begin with, you know, one where you talked about one, one of my rules is do less than you think you should. And so if you think about any skill you're trying to attain, right, like I'm, I'm trying to teach my son to pitch right now. And it's like, you know, how, how does my son get better at pitching? Like he throws lots of pitches, right? Like he puts in the hours, he throws right. lots of pitches, he, he works on his arm. I'm trying to always get smarter and, and better at my job. How do I do that? Like, I read a lot of books. But the research shows that if you want to be wealthier, you should do nothing. And so, you know, the, you know in, in fact, it's been, it's been studied in 19 different countries. And we know in every single one of these studies in, in 19 different developed countries that the more people mess with their portfolios, the worse that they do. And it's, um, it's a monotonic relationship, which means a stepwise, like a perfect relationship that that the more you mess with it, the worse you do in every single country where it's ever been studied. And so it's this confusing thing where like, hey, elsewhere in life, I should study and exert effort and I should be active and, and inquisitive. And in investing, it's just like you should just go away and do something else. And it doesn't, um, you know, it's it's paradoxical. The time piece that I talk about in there, too, you know, if you think about your life, you know, it's like, okay, it's two o'clock now. Do I know what I'm going to be doing at three o'clock? Like, yeah, I know with just about absolute certainty. Like, you know, do I know what I'll be doing a week from now? Like, yeah, I got a pretty good idea. You know, a year from now, less clear, but okay. And like 10 years from now, no clue. Right. Like I have no clue what 10 years from now looks like. So that's sort of our experience of the world is, you know, the the present is very knowable and the future is very unknowable. But markets are exactly the opposite. You know, if you look at any given day, the market's up about 55% of the time. It's down about 55% of the time. But if you look at any 10-year period, the market's been up uh, basically every time but one, you know, over the last 100 years. And so, you know, in, in a real way... Uh, We don't know what the market's going to do today, tomorrow, or next year, but we have a really great idea of what it's going to do 10 years from now, and that's probably go up. And so, you know, getting people to, you know, I call it in the book, Wall Street Bizarro World, getting people comfortable with living rules of this bizarro world that's 180 of the rest of their life is a really hard thing to do.
2: Well, that's great. I do have to ask, I'm curious, having said that, what made you choose to devote your life's work to an area that increasingly shows that skill, maximum effort, and knowledge not only don't usually lead to success, but in some cases can often lead to the opposite? What drew you in there?
0: Uh, Just uh, being a glutton for punishment, (laughs) I think, (laughs) is one of the things that I like about this world or just the world of psychology broadly is that there's never a dull day, right? You know, psychology doesn't, lend itself to the same sort of predictability that that something like physics does as much as psychologists wish, you know, wish it was otherwise. But one of the things about being a psychologist is you're always learning, you're always growing, but you always have to balance this growing knowledge with sort of an ongoing tentativeness and curiosity about the world. And so it's something that you're kind of always getting better at, but you can never master. And in a weird way, that's appealing to me. And I'm not sure what that says about me. But, <laughs> but I, oh, I love it. But I do. I do like that. Yeah.
3: To kind of bring it around to what we've experienced this year in 2022, obviously volatility in the markets. You mentioned, you know, doing less trumps doing more. A bias that certainly we've seen as advisors this year has been that action bias. Clients want to do something another one. And in your book, you mentioned there's 117 biases, behavioral biases that have been identified. It seems to grow all the time. But another one that we've seen this year is, is really anchoring, right? People think about, Hey, where was my portfolio in December of 2021? And until I'm back there, I feel like I've, I've lost money, right? I'm underwater. So identifying these biases is, is one thing. What advice do you have or how do you help advisors or in clients kind of deal with those biases and, and mitigate them to some extent?
0: For advisors, we have this sort of whole five-part communication process because we know that only about half of advice that gets delivered gets acted upon. And this is, we see this across uh, medical contexts. You certainly see this with diet and exercise stuff. Uh, you know certainly investing these are places where uh it's not hard to know what to do but it is hard to stick with it right like it's simple but not easy you know i'm trying to lose some weight right now well like the formula for losing weight is not hard like it's move more and eat less but like (laughs) you can you can know that and still find it difficult to do that day after day and so the same thing is true there for the average investor though I think there's three E's that i like to emphasize. And, you know, behavior change is just so difficult. And for us to do it successfully, we've really got to have sort of multiple modalities going at once. we have got to have multiple legs of the stool. And so the first leg of the stool is education. And so, you know, education is knowing things like the fact that there is on average a correction every single year since world war ii like the end of world war ii so since the mid 40s we've had 80 something corrections so you can expect a market correction like you can expect you know your birthday and christmas and uh, you know every other thing summer winter fall
1: spring market correction. summer
0: winter fall spring like it's coming (laughs) yeah like you know every single year and if you're educated about this like you don't react or you hopefully don't react at least you have some context you know, another piece of yeah. education is we we tend to engage in this recency bias. And so, like surveys I've seen of clients recently ha- have asked them, you know, a couple of months ago, you know, what do you expect the market to do over the next 10 years? Because the market's been on fire for 10 years. And they say, Well, we think it should get about 17% a year, <laughs> you know, for for the next 10 years. And that's just completely divorced from the likely outcome and the historical realities. And so when you're expecting 17% and you get you know, negative 17% or you get 5% or, or whatever, you freak out because you're not educated. So sort of the base of that pyramid is education. The second layer is the right environment, and this has a couple of parts. One of the biggest truisms about human behavior is that people are usually about as well or poorly behaved as the place they find themselves. We all wish we could be the ones to like just move through the world relying on willpower and and our values and our ethics. But you you know usually people are you know if you're if you're trying to be a boy scout like don't find yourself at a bar at 3 a.m. Right? (laughs) I mean these are kind of these Mm -hmm. are these are kind of the rules of the road. And similarly, uh, investors need the right environment. Now this. Environment means, for one, your asset allocation, right? Your, the mix of, of assets you hold, so that they're aligned with your risk preferences, and you don't get sort of bucked off the ride prematurely. And then the second the second piece of this is just what you, you your filter for media, your your media diet. You know, are you always consuming this catastrophic news? Are you always consuming news that's highly politicized and and sort of highly negative that's making you live in this sort of highly aroused, panicked state about the world. And so, you know, investors need to be thoughtful, not only about educating themselves, but also about making sure they have the right mix of assets and making sure they don't move through the world in this sort of negative, panicked way by tuning into the wrong voices. And the third E is encouragement, which is working with a financial advisor. And you know, there's a ton of studies we could talk about here. One of my favorites is out of Canada, and it, it compared people who worked with a financial advisor to those who didn't across different time frames. And they found that, you know, people who have a long-term relationship with an advisor, so people who work with an advisor outperform those who don't at every time frame. And that outperformance grows with time. So that people who work with an advisor over 15 years plus have like 2.73 times the wealth of their peers who make the same salaries and have the same education levels, but are doing it themselves. And it's not because advisors know the future. It's not because advisors you know, have a crystal ball or even pick great stocks. It's because the advisors kept them from making three or four catastrophic decisions they kept you from selling in, you know, March of 2009. They kept you from selling in March of 2020. And they kind of kept you on this path. And that's it. Like, that's that's the difference. And it's worth, you know, two and a half times the the wealth. If you have all these things, right, if you have education, a fundamental understanding of how markets work, if you have the good environment, and if you have someone in your corner to offer you that encouragement... Uh, you can get there, but but it takes all of those.
2: So I, I want to take that even a step further, Dr. Cross, because I think I've heard you uh, state before that even someone is seasoned and identifying and acknowledging biases like yourself uses an advisor. And you've had a podcast with Morgan Housel, uh, someone who we're all big fans of here, say the same thing, that uh, even with his experience uses an advisor. So it sounds like what you're saying is no one is immune to that. even. Your comment earlier about working out, knowing what needs to be done and doing it are often two different things. Um, am I correct in that what you're saying is really universally applicable?
0: It is. And, you know, the concept at play here is something called the knowing doing gap. And so, my favorite or, you know, least favorite example of this is that doctors and nurses. Uh, smoke at a massively higher clip than the, the average population. So <laughs> like nurses smoke at, at nearly double the rate of, of the general American population. And it's not because nurses think smoking is great for their health. They know they lecture people all day on the, you know, the physical dangers of, of tobacco. And yet, you know, they go light up at, at twice the rate of, of you and I. And the reason is because they have stressful jobs and their lives are hard and they stay up late nights and they're looking for a way to relax. And, and you know, it's it's one thing to know something. And we think that knowing something is going to be sort of necessary and sufficient for us to do it. And it just repeatedly is not. And so I pay an advisor to help me stay the course because I know that having written three books on Money and emotions doesn't make me any less emotional. <laughs> like, in in fact, you know, in fact, if anything, I think uh, you know uh, the fact that I work in the industry and I kind of have to watch the markets daily just to sort of have an opinion and field questions on the markets. You know, I think in a better world, I would just go watch a football game or something, and I would work in an industry where I didn't have to keep tabs on the markets and I just contribute to my retirement or whatever, but the fact that I have to sort of stay knee deep in the markets makes me more jittery, I think, probably than the average person. And so even though I know better, uh, that I also know that that doesn't mean that I will do better. And I take pains to, to make it hard for myself to make a mistake. Huh. That's
2: an interesting perspective. I appreciate that. I would also like to go back just for a moment. I mean, we've mentioned several up to this point. We've talked about anchoring, activity bias, recency bias. Let's talk about not all 117, we don't have that much time, but I like how you've categorized this world of biases, kind of putting them into four categories uh, in the book. I think that would be helpful for listeners to understand, maybe not necessarily every single one, identify which ones apply to them, but the four categories, ego, emotion, information, attention, and talking through those to help kind of frame The bias discussion.
0: Yeah, so I've divided it up into you know these these categories, and I'll run through them real quick. Like you said, there's a hundred and something, pushing two hundred now, different biases, and it's. Oh, I undershot
2: it. Sorry.
0: (laughs) No, no, but it was it was a hundred and whatever seventeen when I wrote the book. But there's this, like you suggested, this proliferation. Right, we're always learning more about all the ways we screw up, (laughs) and and so you know one of the things is it's not you know, learning this laundry list of all the ways you're messed up is is never going to help you be a better investor. But I thought if you could understand these sort of meta tendencies, you could guard against them. And so, you know, real quick, the the four meta tendencies, the first one is ego, which is this, you know, the various forms of overconfidence. And there's there's a few, but we think we're, you know, smarter, better, faster than we actually are, uh, we think we're luckier than we actually are. You know, All the research shows we tend to overestimate the chance of good things happening to us and really underestimate the, the chance of bad things happening to us. And uh, we think we're more prescient about the future than we actually are. So there's all these sort of flavors of us just thinking we're better, faster, luckier, more informed than we actually are that lead us to under-diversify, over-trade, make a litany of mistakes. The second one of these is emotion, which is just what it sounds like. You know, it's this tendency to confuse the heart with the head when making investment decisions. You know, I found in my research for the behavioral investor, I looked at some of the fMRI research. So this is like brain scan research. And, you know, what we find is that people are more emotional about money than literally anything else. And I mean, they looked at stuff like, you know, the big ones, sex, politics, religion, like all the big kind of hot button stuff. And money just gets us in a way, Hmm. it it sort of riles up our emotions in a way that nothing else does. And so we're emotional and, and we make emotional decisions. The third one is attention Uh, Which is sort of this informational tendency to attend to things that are loud over things that are likely. And so, you know, the example I give in, in one of my books is I lived in Hawaii for a time. You know, I was a newlywed and we lived in Hawaii. You know, that should have been this idyllic time. We're newly married, we're in love, no kids yet. And, you know, we're like living in paradise. But the first thing I did when we got to our new place in Hawaii was, we had like three channels. And so I watched shark week, I turned on discovery <laughs> channel and I watched shark week. And then like, I couldn't go to the beach. Like I couldn't, I, I couldn't get in the water. And you know, you've got like a one in 300 million chance of, of, you know, being bit by a shark. Like I had a much more likely to slip and fall in the shower, a million other things. And yet, you know, you got a one in three chance of being pre-diabetic, but yet, you know, there's no diabetes week, but there is a shark week. And so like, you know, we we attend to these things that are that are allowed over things that are likely in in sort of our media diet.
2: Probabilistic thinking isn't really a, a default setting for most people, is it?
0: No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, probabilistic thinking is, is how we make great decisions. But narrative thinking right like stories is how we actually make decisions and so we evaluate the probability of a scenario based on how vivid a story we can call up about it and you know if you think about like imagine being eaten by a shark i'm like well yeah like that's real easy like they've got movies about that and i've seen them and you know i can i can put myself in that place you know now it's like imagine yourself getting diabetes and it's like what i had like too many sodas for lunch over 30 years. Like, you know, I mean, it's just not quite the same. But yeah, it's a great point. And the, the last one's conservatism, which is our tendencies to sort of be overly conservative, uh, to confuse what we know with what's good or what's safe, uh, to not want to take risk, to want to do the status quo, to not want to take on uncertainty. So it's this, it's sort of the various flavors of status quo proneness and risk aversion.
1: Well, and it's, I think all four of those, and then, of course, the mul- many multiple that, that are offshoots of those, so many have to do with that environment. I loved your three E's you gave, but the E for environment was huge. I think there's so much information, there's so much data that we just submerse ourselves in it and forget that, like, hey, we've got to come up and breathe sometimes. So I, I think all of those... Ego conservatism, attention to motion. really, I think the environment we put ourselves in affects all of those so greatly. And it just kind of depends on how we're wired, right? From there, any of those could take you down and, or and down a path. Tyler, so. something Dr. Crosby said
3: related to environment is that asset allocation, something you talk about in your book, Dr. Crosby is goals-based investing. And I think that's one of the ways you can. At least attempt to mitigate some of these biases that, that we are all subject to. Could you talk a little bit about goals-based investing and how that can help investors through a, a difficult time in, in markets like we've seen this year?
0: Yeah, so one of the things, so of one of the truisms about behavioral finance is you always want to roll with a human tendency if you can instead of fighting against it. So there's this great idea in martial arts <clears throat> called the the circular theory of self-defense. I lived in Asia for a couple of years and I, and I sort of encountered this here. And, you know, the basic idea is you never want to block an enemy's punch like head on when you can kind of roll with their energy and let them use their exertion against them. And so like goals based investing is a great Uh, example of how something like emotion, which we all experience, can be channeled for good. So there's this awesome study out of Canada uh, where they looked at people engaged in sort of goals based decision making versus a control group. So the control groups just, you know, they're monitoring them, spend their money. The goals based group has to look at a picture of their spouse and children for five seconds before making any sort of buy, sell, spend, whatever decision with their money. And they found that the people who looked at a picture of their kids for for five seconds before making a financial decision saved more than twice as much money uh, as the control group, which is totally irrational, by the way. Like, you (laughs) you, you know, rationally, you should just save as much money as you need to save. And, you know, you should just do that. And yet we know that people getting re-centered on their goals and their values and why they started this journey in the first place um, makes them much more likely to stay the course. In, in other research, we found that people were 10 times less likely to sell all their stocks and go to cash uh, during the great financial crisis if their buckets, you know, these, these sort of pots of money, were just named. So it's like this very simple act of just, you know, calling this Daniel's, whatever, Daniel's Retire to Norway Fund instead of, you know, instead of fund XYZ123. This simple act of of tying that to a purpose is so transformative. And so, yeah, goals-based investing, working with your advisor to just remind yourself of what this is all for, and the people this is going to allow you to to love and be with and and the opportunities that it's going to present for you, making it less of a video game kind of where numbers are just going up and down and, and more real life is a simple but powerful exercise.
2: So you're in a unique position working for Orion, who, for those who don't know, just has a great platform, works with advisors all over the country and the world. Uh, so you have the benefit of you know, seeing a lot of data. Do you, in your time there, have you seen progress as the the topic of behavioral finance has become more common in the investment industry and outside uh, the the evidence, the increased usage of exchange traded funds and indexing, passive investing, maybe more of a adoption of set it and forget it or use an advisor. Are you seeing progress in these areas and areas of self awareness for investors, or is this just like many other things, global financial crisis being the most recent one. Maybe we learned something in the short term. Maybe we kind of carried some of those things we learned to the intermediate term and in the long term, we just forget it all and it's a never ending cycle. Are are you seeing uh, sustainable progress by investors in these areas?
0: Yeah, I am. And you know, what's interesting, so you talked about Funds, right? So when we look at the funds, fund flows are going about three to one towards the least expensive, most diversified, most tax efficient funds. So that's a great win. Like there's never been a better time to be an investor. It's never been more affordable to get access to the whole world and to a whole, you know, bevy of of asset classes. So that, you know, you're seeing progress there the number of people receiving advice has grown precipitously over the past few years we're we're just south of 50% of americans now are receiving financial advice so we we still have plenty of room for improvement and then you know the thing that i'm focused on primarily is is making sure that those people that are receiving the advice are doing so in a way that is sticky and, and doing so in a way that, that that really conforms to their values and beliefs and they can stick with. And we've had incredible enthusiasm for our offering. So I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. Uh, I think it's a great time to be an investor and a great time to be an advisor. And it's, it's awesome to see the world sort of embracing Holistic wealth management and life-centered wealth management—that's that's about more than than the ups and downs of the market, but you know, more centrally focused on the life that 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 those returns can serve.
1: Awesome. Well, I thought this was interesting. I, I kind of took this from uh, a podcast you have done where you interviewed Nick Majuli, and so I'm going to kind of give you the question. But what's some of, what's maybe one of the least conventional bit of financial advice that you've either have given something you've bought into recently or maybe even a conclusion you've reached in all the years of studying that the, the research that you have you've kind of looked at
0: yeah so here's an unconventional piece of advice is that Doing what's financially optimal may not be behaviorally optimal. So I you know, I think we have to make a differentiation between sort of mathematical spreadsheet optimal and then what's right for the individual or the family uh, in consideration. So a while back, a couple of years ago, I sat down with my advisor and was like, look, I want to pay off, I want to pay off my house. And, you know, this is at a time when rates were ridiculously low, you know, whatever, 2% or 2.5% or something. And, you know, we kind of went through the math and it was like, hey, this doesn't really make sense. You know, when uh, mathematically, this doesn't make sense because when a diversified portfolio is going to give you, you know, 7 or 8% long over, over the long run, you know, you can get this debt at 2 2.5%. Two Why would you just not keep the money invested? Right, right. And I sort of insisted, and in, in what it's allowed me to do is take appropriate risk with the rest of my assets. And so it's one of those things where, uh, is it financially optimal? Definitely not. But does it help me sleep better at night? Does it make me happier? Does it allow me sufficient peace of mind to take a, a higher level of risk with other assets? You know, the answer to all of those things is yes. And so I think, you know, as individuals and advisors, we have to look for times when sort of the textbook answer or the mathematical answer is not the behavioral answer. And, you know, obviously what I did wasn't like foolish or crazy, but it was, you know, it maybe wasn't optimal. But sometimes what's suboptimal mathematically is just the right thing behaviorally. And so I think that's something we need to be on the lookout for.
2: That's a discussion we have so frequently here clients with different types of debt. And often, debt, because of what you mentioned, the interest rate environment we've been in is low interest rate debt. But that can so often be a weight on people and they cannot think more clearly about their stock and bond portfolio or other things until that issue, for lack of a better term, is taken care of. So that's something not only you went through, but we as advisors see and deal with every day. That's a great mm-hmm. point. Yep.
1: Dr. Crosby, what are a few, one or two maybe, things that you've heard specifically this year? I mean, really since 8 and we've kind of hit on it, you know, people got, or investors got so used to the market just going up and having these double-digit returns. What are some of the common questions you hear? you've heard or had other advisors bring up during this type of market? What maybe are there any certain issues that have come up during this market since, since it's it's been a little while since we've really had a, a pullback like this?
0: Yeah. What's so fascinating when you kind of look at the fund flow data is people have been remarkably well behaved during both the COVID crash and, you know, the pullback earlier this year. And, uh, you know, the reasons for that we could debate But I think people are getting wise. Like, I think people are getting wise to the fact that, yes, these things happen. uh, But the truth about the markets is that, you know, big up days and big down days tend to occur in concert. And so if you try and time the market and you're, you know, trying to jump out after a crash, you're likely to miss a big update too. So, you know, we have gotten some questions, but candidly, when you look at the numbers, people have been remarkably orderly. And I think, you know, even I, I think part of it's the lessons learned from a long bull market, which may or may not persist that that say like, hey, every dip gets bought and, and it isn't bad for that long. Or, you know, the Fed's coming to the rescue or something else. But, you know, people have been remarkably well behaved. The questions we do get are are the standard ones, and and a lot of them are sort of center around the, you know, this time is different sort of thinking. Right, right. (laughs) You you, you saw that a lot, you know, you saw that a lot with COVID, like, right, Mm -hmm. like, okay, okay, yes, like, we've seen other bad stuff before, but this is like an existential threat. This is a worldwide thing. The thing that's tricky, you know, we talked about some of the paradoxes um, before One of the other tricky things is learning not to conflate the human impact of a thing with the investment impact of a thing. So you look at something like, you know, the Wright brothers, right? The Wright brothers inventing air flight. Like, was that an enormous boon for humankind? Like, has it completely changed the way that we do business? Like, absolutely have airlines been a good investment by and large over that time? Like, no, they've been horrible, (laughs) you know? And so it's like, just because something has a huge impact on the world doesn't mean it's going to be good, bad, or indifferent. You look at COVID too. Like, Was COVID this once-in-a-generation killer virus that shook the world to its foundations? Yes, absolutely. Like Millions of people are dead and we rightly mourn like the human toll of a horrible illness. And yet the economic impact of that has in some ways been like pretty well contained. And so I think that one of the things that we, we tend to do is we go, Oh, this is going to be a big deal, right? Um, Whether it be in the business world or whether it be the human toll of something, but you know, whether or not something has makes waves in, in either of these ways is a separate conversation uh, from from whether or not we should be investing in it and you know ultimately uh investing is just a form of optimism you know i think well diversified prudent investing is just punching your ticket for saying that the world is going to get kinder gentler better higher functioning over time and that's always been true through wars and pandemics and natural disasters and a million other horrible things, you know, the arc of the moral universe has, has bent towards justice and greater productivity and, and higher quality human life. And ultimately that's the bet you're making when you're an investor and I'll make that bet all day.
3: We'll join g- you. Great great point. Said.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we like the optimistic side. We, mm-hmm. a, and I think to, to, you know, in all seriousness, we don't ever want to paint this rosy picture and and try to tell people that or or say, hey, no, no, don't look over here. Like, let's look at the positive side.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, both things can be true, right? Every year we're going to have a correction, as you said earlier, that can be true. And it can also be true that over a long period of time, one of the best ways to compound wealth is through investing in the stock market. Right.
0: Yeah. That's a great, that's a great way to think of it, right? Think of it as both and and not either or. And so, you know, you think about something like COVID, like, was covid was and is covid we're still losing you know hundreds of people a day to covid you know was covid this you know unique like existential threat that that has ravaged some people's lives yes so what should we do about that well we should donate to food banks like we should give charitably we should reach out to people in need we should be empathetic to people who've lost a loved one like there's a hundred things that we should do in the face of something like covid none of which are, you know, tweaking your portfolio. So I think the same thing is true about politics. You know, we see people, if your person, right, if your sort of tribe is not in, in power, the people in the party that's not in power are tend to be really pessimistic about the economy. So if you don't like what the people in charge are doing politically, like, go, go to work, you know, vote, be an activist write a letter, do a hundred things, but don't pull your investments when the other guy is in office, You know, which is something we see. So I think there's a lot of people who are confusing what they should do in life with what should they, they should do in their investments. Oh, absolutely. absolutely.
1: I'm going to have Max and Zach think of if there's any final thoughts or questions or comments, and then Dr. Crosby, I'll have you start thinking maybe about one thing we love to do at the end of all of our podcasts is use stories to really drive things home. And you've given us some stories already, some of them personal stories about your shark attack fear, which is valid. <laughs> Max, Zach, anything, anything else that we haven't, I mean, we could, we could dive into so much of this. Um, but I want to be, we want to be respectful of, of your time, Dr. Crosby. And, uh, that just means we'll do it again. But I, anything you guys have as, as we wrap up here again, I appreciate
2: what you've done educating investors, uh, the books you've written. It is, it's is—it's stuff that needs to be heard, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. You've probably read a little bit about maybe our approach to managing money and uh, how we do things here. its It can be challenging in times, uh, most recently 2021, when there seemed to be this great opportunity and we're forced to have conversations with clients on NFTs and specs and crypto virtually every week <laughs> um, and what we're doing is probably not perceived by many to be exciting in times um, uh, but I think you share our feeling that discipline trumps conviction and I think so much of behavioral finance is centered around that that being evidence-based understanding what the guardrails are and the right way to do it and then stick to it have a conviction to stick to that and our job as advisors is to certainly help our clients but to also inform others about this mad world of investing and and how to have success over time we need more people like you to uh, mm-hmm. be out there and and furthering that message
0: yeah well i i appreciate it you know one of my rules and the laws of wealth is if you're excited about it it's probably a bad idea mm-hmm. and you know, there's a good investing, prudent investing is sort of painfully slow and boring. But, you know, we also know that get rich fit fast and, and get poor fast are sides of the same coin. And so, you know, you all are doing important work, educating the public, helping them to understand what's prudent and what's not and what's uh, sort of a fly by night thing and not the opportunity that yeah. it might otherwise seem. So it's uh, it's important work. We think so.
1: <laughs> so as we end, Dr. Crosby, any stories uh, that may stick out to you that you've used in the past kind of help drive home what we've talked about?
0: You know, the one that comes to mind right now, we'll take it back to goals based investing and and just, you know, summarize some of the things we've talked about. You know, Sir Isaac Newton is this brilliant person, of course, one of the smartest to ever to ever live. And unlike a lot of luminaries, he was well-respected in in his time. He was wealthy in his time. We didn't have to wait for him to die to to recognize his genius. He was a big deal in his time, and he was quite rich as a result. So he invests in one of the first publicly traded companies, uh, the South Sea Company, and he compounds his great wealth even further. And he feels like he sees some things in the company he doesn't love. He feels like it's getting a little frothy. And so he pulls his investment and he's like, look, I've I've got all the money that I need. I'm doing just fine. We're going to kind of ride it out. And so, you know, a couple months later, though, he starts to hear stories of uh, his friends and family members and other acquaintances uh, getting even richer by having stayed invested in this you know highly speculative investment and even though he has sufficient for his needs right even though he has adequate money to live out the rest of his life very comfortably that's not enough he wants to be better than them right he says look i'm i'm smarter i'm more renowned why is this dummy richer than me and so he he piles it all back in right before it goes to zero and he has this saying, you know, that I think summarizes some of what we were just um, talking about. He says, you know, I can calculate the movement of the stars, but not the madness of men. <laughs> and, you know, investing is partially about calculating the movement of the stars, right? It's all the ratios and the, the analytics and, and understanding how to invest. Uh, but it's also about understanding the madness of, of men and women and and that we, uh, you know, that we can be the maddest of all sometimes. Like he, right. yeah. he, um, you know, he didn't have a personal benchmark. He didn't have a personal goal because he had all the money that he needed. So understanding what enough looks like is just as important as anything that we've talked about today. So I'm glad that folks have people like you to help them, you know guide to that personal benchmark and, and understand what enough looks like for them.
1: Oh, I love it. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Crosby, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. Uh, I know that our audience is going to really enjoy this. So we will, uh, if, if you'll let us, we'll do it again uh, at some point in the future. And I'm sure we'll have a hundred other biases that have, I was going to say we've we been maybe discovered.
2: three hundred <laughs> yeah. by the next time we talk.
1: We'll,
0: <laughs> yeah, when we hit three hundred, we'll do it again. <laughs> Some sub biases maybe. Right. We'll,
3: we'll link to your book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there a place people can follow you on Twitter or otherwise that you'd like to share?
0: Yeah. Uh, the The book is called The Laws of Wealth. That's probably the best one for for y'all to read. My podcast is called Standard Deviations. It's about all the stuff we talked about today. And yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby PhD, and on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. He's
1: he's a good follow, I can I can admit to that. So, Dr. Crosby, thank you so much for the time, man. Have a uh, have an awesome rest of the week. Yeah, cheers y'all. Thank you so much, Crosby.
0: If you enjoyed today's conversation, please review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of
1: Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.